We are Dr. Sarah Bone and Dr. Lisa Tartaglia. We are both actively practicing osteopathic physicians, dual boarded in family medicine and hospice and palliative medicine. You Only Die Once is a virtual place for sharing information about serious illness, the end of life process, hospice and palliative medicine with the patient, the family, and the practitioner. You only die once, and we believe it can and should be a good death. Hi, I'm Dr. Lisa Tartaglia. Dr. Bohm, how are you? We've had some questions and some comments, and they're really good questions and comments that we've received. And so one of the things that we want to go over with for you is we talked about serious illness recently. And in that communication, one of the things we talked about, I think the first thing that we talked about was artificial nutrition and needing some sort of nutritional change might indicate a serious illness. And so that's what we're going to, we're going to go into more detail today. Okay, great. So let's get started. We're going to talk about the different consistencies of diets that you can have. And then oftentimes we forget the things that actually cause those. So should we start out with the consistency? Well, yeah, altered nutrition. I think consistency is uh, something that we often see. And so, you know, you think of a regular diet, you think of a soft diet. There's a such thing as a mechanical soft diet. There are all types of dysphagia diets, and we're not dietitians or nutritionists, so we're not going to really go into that. But then the, the next oral diet change is puree. And sometimes people need a puree mm -hmm. diet. And we have to worry about the size of the feeding um, as also the caloric intake of the feeding. Yeah. So sometimes people can only take small meals, but sometimes they need more calories. So you have to have frequent small meals, maybe several feeds a day. Usually we get a consult from a nutritionist or a dietitian and they will do um, lab work. Yeah. They'll ask us to get some lab work, but they'll do an evaluation and they will determine what the patient's needs are, and they'll make recommendations as to, you know, how we should address their nutritional needs. And oftentimes they do a bedside swallow study with all the different consistencies that we spoke about. Um, the nutritionists and um, uh, dietitians also will make the decision of whether or not it's still to, safe to eat orally. Right. And that's a really kind of a scary time for a lot of families because they, they might think, what do you mean they're not safe to eat orally? How can that be? And there are some processes that will cause an individual to not be able to, to get the food in the right place in a safe manner, and it puts them at risk for eating. So the method of consumption is, you know, we we're talking a lot about different diets and the downgrades of oral nutrition, but there's also other things you have to look at when patients are eating orally. Um, are they able to eat independently? Do uh, they need help with feeding? Can they be fed, you know, if we just get a, um, somebody to assist them with the meals? And then there's other patients um, that eat orally where uh, they are finger foods and they're just hand feeding. So they can only eat a consistency of food that they could pick up and put into their uh, mouth. Sometimes patients are at a facility like a nursing home or an assisted living facility, and they might take some finger foods, but it's not enough to really sustain them. And so they need a lot of assistance, and they may be at what they call a feeder table. And that actually um, is where you have somebody that actually will end up, you know, take all that independence away from them and offer them the food or beverage, you know, 
because the patient does, doesn't have the interest anymore to eat or drink or the ability to eat or drink on their own. And we do recommend hand feeding where someone else offers all of that food to you. And of course, it's not like I have the food over here and then I'm going to let you have it. They'll put the, the food right in front of the person so that if they have interest, they can certainly feed themselves. Exactly. But they're going to have to have somebody else use the fork and use the spoon because, you know, their disease process, and we'll go through some of those, but their disease process is so advanced that they don't do that on their own anymore. They must be hand fed by another individual. And that takes time. So sometimes you really have to have patience and have a skilled provider to offer that because a lot of times in life we're really fast and we don't understand the disease process. So it's really good to have a skilled person that has the patience and will take the time to encourage uh, the patient to eat. Because, you know, for me, I mean, I can, I can just woof it down if I'm really hungry or I'm really enthusiastic. But if you get somebody that is maybe more frail or is older, um, that frail or older person may not have that enthusiasm and they may not have that ability to take big bites. And so you've got to have somebody that is going to go slower. Oral nutrition, of course, is the best. Taking it by mouth is the best way to get that nutrition in you. And so if a person can't take it orally, they, we have other way, ways that we can get it, get it in their tummy. Right. So initially, um, most, most commonly, you start out with an NG tube, which is a tube that goes into your Naso, nose, gastric. and gastric, into the stomach. Um, it's also known as like, you know, using a dub hoff. Um, I think that's the catheter yeah. that they use yeah. to it. An NG tube is not used for very long mm -hmm. because it irritates the nose. It irritates the sinus cavities. Sinus infections from an NG tube being there for several days are extremely common. And they can actually kind of get erosions or ulcers because it is a plastic tube going into your nose. And, you know, we've all had these tests the last couple of years where they're sticking a Q-tip in your nose. I don't think having a tube in my nose to put, you know, food in fluids because I mean it is nutrition but it's liquid nutrition in my tummy that's just not doesn't sound like something I would want to have it's usually a very short duration for an NG tube yeah and usually after seven to ten days with the NG tube you start to think okay if the patient's not going to be able to eat orally or they're not waking up to take in the nutrition then we look at um, a more um, complex procedure that's done, well, it can be done even at the bedside, but done by a uh, gastroenterologist. And uh, that is a PEG tube. And the PEG tube can be um, a G tube or a J tube. So but it, it, yeah, uh, it, the, it basically, it's just like a buttonhole mm -hmm. that goes through the abdominal wall from the outside into directly into their stomach or into the top part of their small intestine so that liquid nutrition or formula, it's very similar to a baby formula, can be put through that either in bolus feeds or, um, you know, like continuous, continuous with the feeds, pump. thank you, through a pump. And so a lot of people, you know, depending on the individual, they will want to put that in at night, maybe while the person is sleeping, or they'll want to bolus feed them so it's more natural, like how a person would eat in boluses, you know, four, maybe five times a day, they're getting that nutrition. But there are some issues with peg feeding as well. One of the issues with peg feeding is some people who get that are not really aware of what it's there for. And so they can tend to want to pull it out. Mm -hmm. 
Now, even if somebody knows it's there, and I can't tell you how many times I've got an individual I'm taking care of right now, and he's like gotten out of the shower and he's, you know, trying to dry off and boop, you know, he pops that thing out. And, you know, he knows enough now. He knows what he's got to do till he gets to the hospital so that they can, you know, put that thing back in and make sure it's in the right place. But, you know, pull it up. I know he's pulled it out, getting out of the shower. He's pulled it out, putting on his pants. And so that's the only way he has to receive nutrition because this just doesn't work for him to use his swallowing tube. His esophagus doesn't work anymore. So he wants the nutrition and he knows why it's there. And he still ends up Mm -hmm. inadvertently pulling it out. But and just like a peg tube being pulled out, the NG tube is really can also be pulled out because it's very much like Dr. Bone went through an irritant to the nose and into the stomach. So people, you know, you shouldn't have a tube that's going down your throat. And when you're it's altered, not pleasant. it's not pleasant. They really want to pull that out also. So can you talk to them a little bit and tell them why a person that has some, maybe a neurologic, I'm thinking specifically of dementia and why we don't recommend people with dementia to have a feeding tube because a lot of times people with dementia lose a lot of interest in feeding and families worry that my loved one is not interested in eating and if they don't eat they're going to die and so we have some things that we talk with families about when a dementia patient no longer wants to eat you want to elaborate on that a little bit yeah sure um oftentimes we have to look at their interest in food. And if patients, I always tell my patients and especially the families with a dementia patient, because you really can't converse. These patients are very, very weak. Um, They've declined so much tremendously that usually they're not verbal. So you cannot have a meaningful conversation. So oftentimes what I like to tell the families is we meet the patient where they're at. So if they have lost interest in food and say they're only eating like maybe an applesauce a day, that's fine. Let's not We don't want to force them into eating larger volumes of food because what will happen is they will aspirate because what happens with um, neurological illnesses, they've lost the connection between the brain and the swallowing. So there's a problem with the swallowing component um, and they aspirate and aspiration means when food goes into the lungs and that is not safe because that's a foreign body. Lungs are meant for breathing. So when food goes into the lungs, it creates an irritation, usually, you know, chemical pneumonitis or then becomes an aspiration pneumonia. You'll hear of these things and that will cause more harm. It's an infectious process. And these people are already very debilitated and they have to try to fight off an infectious process. The problem is patients will be told, oh, well, they're not able to eat anymore. Let's go ahead and do this peg tube. And then they can get their nutrition. They'll get their nutrition, right? But it causes other problems. It, mm-hmm. It's a tether. Mm-hmm. So you've got somebody that maybe has some confusion and their interest, their ability to eat and swallow it may be reduced and their interest in eating is maybe significantly reduced. And now we want to put this feeding tube in. So during the feeds, we maybe need to keep their hands away from their abdomen. And that means maybe mittens that they have to put on, special gloved mittens that so they can't grab things and pull. Maybe just like um, the individual I was talking about earlier, you know, they have to put this belt around them to kind of try to hide that tube. And it acts as a tether. So it's sort of a tie down. So you've already got somebody who we don't think can swallow very well, who doesn't have a lot of interest in food. And now we're going to tie their hands down. We've got this person that now is at risk 
for a bed sore mm -hmm. because we're trying to keep them from pulling that thing out. And they may, you know, during the feedings, they need to be kept in a chair because mm -hmm. we don't want to feed them when they're laying down. People don't eat when they're laying down. That's going to worsen their risk for this chemical pneumonia. Your, your lungs are meant for breathing, not for digesting. So when food goes into your lungs, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't go away. It doesn't dissolve. And that's problem for it to go into your lungs. Mm -hmm. I think we should go ahead and talk about parenteral feeding because, you know, if you can't take it orally and then for whatever reason you've got a problem with getting it in through your tummy wall, that kind of, or your nasal gastric tube, that kind of leaves you with just one other avenue. And I know a lot of people think, well, why can't they just feed them through the vein? We can for very short periods of time, and that's just like a few days. Your body is made for those nutrients to come in through your intestines. And so to try to break those chemicals down into the building blocks that it goes into the vein is really complex. And to try to give those so that they don't want to reattach to each other and make food in the bag, mm -hmm. that's kind of a problem. You need certain fats in there and those lipids, those fats that go in there, don't want to mix well with the other foods because, you know, if you've ever poured oil and vinegar together or water and oil mm -hmm. together, you know, they want to separate. Uh -huh. And so to try to get that stuff to go in, you can't put those fats right into their body and to try to get it to emulsify, it just doesn't work as well as it mm -hmm. does when you take that stuff in a natural way. You're meant to take it by mouth and meant to get it that way. And so when they offer parenteral nutrition, we know we've got a problem and we know that problem has got to be fixed or addressed within a few days, you know, seven days, 10 days, but it really needs to be addressed. Do a nutrition through the vein, total peripheral nutrition, some sort of um, alternate way to get those nutrients right into the vein. A lot of lab work needs to be done. Yes. Often. Often, many times, sometimes multiple times throughout the day. Yeah, throughout the day, because we may be running different things. And so they can't, like if it's going in and it just has to go into a bigger vein, you don't want to put it in a hand or an arm, it usually needs to go into a larger vein. They, they don't want to draw it out of that because they want to see, you know, after it's kind of like mixing everything mm -hmm. up in there. So they may have to get it from the other side of the body. So it's another needle stick for the person. So it's or, not or maybe painless. No, it's not painless. And it maybe needs to be done either before the next feeding or after a feeding so that you kind of get more accurate results about what, what they look like before we put that stuff in there. But it's mm -hmm. pretty dangerous to get TP in, especially if it goes on for very many days. It gets really nerve-wracking. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The labs are really hard to follow. You know, we talked about our consistency. We talked about the different methods, but we want to really touch on why? Why would you need to have, you know, we did talk a little bit about dementia, but what other illnesses would cause you to um, to have uh, altered nutrition? So something, a problem with your mouth mm -hmm. or a problem with your, your swallowing, a sw your swallowing tube, something wrong with your stomach. It seems simple. You know, you just put stuff in your mouth and you chew it up and it goes down, but it's actually a really complicated process to chew to bolus that, to get it into this little small wad at the back of your tongue, and then to force it down the right opening. Because, that, you know, your, your, your esophagus and your trachea lie one right behind the other. And so, you know, your, your 
epiglottis actually comes up and closes over the hole and your your esophagus, your swallowing tube is actually this kind of flattened sack or uh, straw that's, you know, an, an open tube, but it's flat and it lies behind it. So you close over the trachea and then your tongue knows how to make that into a wad, whether it's liquid. You think, man, that's really complicated to make a liquid into a wad. And then your tongue shoves it down the right place. Mm -hmm. That's really complicated. And so there's a lot of things that can go wrong that can make that not work right. And then you can get what they call penetration, where your trachea doesn't completely get closed over by the epiglottis. And maybe it's just a little bit of trickle. Right. that goes down and you know i know i've been watching a funny show or something and i felt that little tickle or trickle because somebody said something funny but i cough because i'm protecting my airway so i feel that little trickle in my trachea and then my nervous system immediately triggers a cough and so if you've got somebody who's coughing at mealtime they are protecting their airway that's a good thing but it may indicate if they're coughing, particularly with thin liquids, it yep. may indicate that they, there's there's a possibility of a swallow problem. Yeah, and you really should look into it. Also, obviously, you choke at different locations um, in the body. So choking, you know, oftentimes people may choke maybe because they have a restriction of their esophagus. Um, they could have Barrett's esophagus, like um, um, a GERD. Um, but most times patients are choking because they're having trouble with their digestive system and they're swallowing. I mean, that's another reaction. And then obviously what we've already discussed is the aspiration, which means when our food particles go into our lung, which is- So it made it all the way down. Yeah. And that, that's very dangerous. And um, we can have silent aspiration. Because mm -hmm. they didn't cough and they didn't choke, mm -hmm. but they just start getting a fever. Now they've got a pneumonia. And just kind of the way our trachea is made, it kind of is sort of like this, where you have your main airway and then it kind of, it doesn't exactly why, it kind of off to the side, off to the side a little bit. So typically if liquids go down and we have somebody that's older that comes into the hospital or that has a medical issue and we know they've had some cough or choke and they've got a right lower lobe pneumonia, we're really concerned that that individual could possibly have aspiration. Yeah, and that's a board question for those who are- For those who are studying. Who are studying, that is definitely a board question. And then the big thing is, is um, when you're not taking in enough food, then you it's you can't sustain, sustain yourself. So when you don't have enough fluids and you're not able to sustain yourself, this is when we start talking about artificial nutrition. But again, to discuss the illnesses, it's a mostly neurological illnesses that cause this, like an ALS, um, strokes can cause this, dementia, MS, and then Parkinson's disease in the late stages can cause altered nutrition and difficulty with swallowing. And then the other uh, illnesses, ALS, ALS, what is ALS? ALS is also known as uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, but it's a progressive neurological disorder. Amyotropic lateral sclerosis. Mm -hmm. And it's a really frightening, frightening Very disease. Frightening. Yeah. 
And then MS, you said the, the letters MS, what is that? Yes, that's multiple sclerosis. Okay. So these are advanced stages of both of those illnesses. It's not something that, that happens early on, but it is often common for those to happen. And of course, any type of dementia, and we'll go into more about dementias when we do the dementia talk, but having dementia just means a cognitive impairment process. And it, there are multiple causes. The patient has dementia, you know, they've got cognitive impairment, but it doesn't tell you anything about the disease process, where it came from, how it progresses, what the trajectory is. Yes, we'll definitely cover that in another video because there are so many types and each type progresses differently. differently. But any, any type of cognitive impairment can cause a swallowing issue. Yeah. And then there's structural illnesses, most likely, you know, what we think of as for us, it's malignancy. So some people can live a long-term and I just want to be clear, there are some diseases like a head and neck cancer. Um, it was really interesting. I had a um, ENT professor that, um, you know, rounded at one of the hospitals and he was a little bit different because he would show up and um, he did have a head and neck cancer and he was peg tube dependent and he rounded every single day. To, to my knowledge, he's still alive. And this is like 25 years later. Um, he's been sustained with uh, peg feeding for a long time. And he would be really funny. We'd be at Ruth Chris and he's like, oh, don't mind me. And he pours his, his, uh, his nutritional formula, formula into, his, into his peg and, you know, feed himself at the table. And we were just like, whoa. And then he would take the food home for his family. And I worked with a physician who had um, uh, an intestinal issue. He had an inflammatory bowel condition. And so he was peg to fit. Mm -hmm. So these patients, because they're active and they're not debilitated, they can live a long time with this. But what you really need to do and what our, our channel is trying to do, what Yodo is trying to do, is empower you to ask the questions to your physicians. Is this a reversible condition? What was mom, dad, sister, brother, yourself, your husband, your children, God forbid, what did they look like prior to this aspiration? Right, right. So methods of feeding, types of feeding, calorie count, uh, frequency of feeds, independence of eating, all of those weigh into nutritional changes, like we said, in serious illness. And so if a person is having any kind of issue with their ability to take in nutrition, there's a possibility that that could be an indicator of serious illness, that we all need those team members to help. So if you've got you know specific questions, you can certainly ask those or leave them in the comments because we do want to try to address it, but some of the more intricate Questions are going to have to be answered by those specialties. And I just want to add something um, just to say to all of you, you, you can make your own decisions. So do not feel that you are compelled to have a PEG tube or a um, NG tube to feed your loved one. There right. are other options out there. The option may not be a long life, uh, you know, a frivolous life, but we have to look at what is quality um, versus your quantity. What would your loved one want? And many of my, my older patients remember the names of the landmark cases for Terry Schiavo, mm -hmm. Karen Ann Quinlan, Nancy Cruz. and Nancy Cruzan. And, you know, if you want to Google those and look those cases up, those people all used uh, different methods of artificial nutrition and the families had different feelings about how long do you continue that in, in different settings. So, you know, does come up and it's a sensitive topic for a lot of people. 
We don't want to tell you what to do. We just want you to know what's out there so you can feel like you're more prepared and you're better educated. Thank you for listening today. You can also find us on YouTube, channel name, You Only Die Once. If you have any specific questions you would like us to address, please feel free to send us an email at youonlydieoncedos at gmail.com. That's youonlydieoncedos at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you again soon. 